Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very, very special episode. This is the 100th episode of America Adapts. My guest for this milestone episode is Dr. A.R. Siders, a managed retreat expert and researcher at the University of Delaware. Before we jump into that conversation with Dr. Siders, I want to give a heads up. I'll be acknowledging the 100th episode milestone in my annual end of the year episode, which will be a few episodes from now. So technically, it won't be the 100th episode any longer. But I did want to step back and reflect on what's going on with the podcast and talk about previous episodes with a guest panel for that end of the year episode. So in this episode, we're talking about managed retreat. Not only do I take a deep dive on the issue with Dr. Siders, but I also talk with two of her students, Bridget Flynn and Jennifer Gallagher, who are studying some on-the-ground managed retreat case studies. Great stuff, and I love hosting students on the pod. Upcoming episodes, I talked with disaster management expert Dr. Samantha Montano about the disaster and adaptation policy positions of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. She and a colleague analyzed the candidates' current positions on the issue of emergency management and how it's related to climate adaptation, and they assess what they are proposing and also what's missing. Also up, I'm hosting Judge Alice Hill and talking about her new book, Building a Resilient Future. Judge Hill used to work with the National Security Council during the Obama administration. She came on a while ago, but looking forward to having her back and talking about her new book. I'm also hosting Jesse Keenan of Harvard University about the Federal Reserve of San Francisco's new newsletter that focused on climate adaptation, and that I contributed an article to it. Jesse edited that entire edition, and we're going to discuss the diverse voices and topics that contributed to that piece. Okay, let's jump into this conversation about managed retreat with Dr. A.R. Siders. Hey, Adapters. Today, I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. A.R. Siders. Siders is an assistant professor at the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. Hi, Siders. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, I'm calling you Siders, and that's your last name, but you told me that's what you go by, right? Yes, that's right. I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> my listeners will immediately go, that's a bit casual of Doug just to start calling her by her last name, <laughs> but this is all understood. No, no, I, I often have to tell people to, specifically to t- call me by my last name, but it's a holdover from having brothers and sports and working for the Navy. All right, let's just jump right into this. So what's the kind of work that you do at the Disaster Research Center? I work primarily on climate change adaptation. So thinking about how communities and government agencies can respond to and prepare for the effects of climate change that we're going to feel. Particularly, I do a lot of work on managed retreat. So an adaptation that is all about moving people and assets out of harm's way. So instead of building walls in front of them or elevating houses, I think about how do we convince people to move and how do we do that in a way that's beneficial for everybody. Again, this whole episode is going to be about managed retreat. And just a very recent episode was about sort of flooding, how to kind of get people out of there. So this is a nice kind of follow up to that. And you sort of very briefly describe what managed retreat is. But is there a technical definition? Has the field gotten to that point yet where they're trying to define it in a very technical, specific way? The field is definitely working on this, but I wouldn't say we're there yet. People use all different kinds of words. So you'll hear people talk about resettlement or relocation or retreat or managed retreat, strategic retreat, planned retreat. People are trying to come up with a definition. So something about people moving, of course, and then there's an element of moving with government assistance or in a coordinated way. These are the kind of core elements of managed retreat that make it different from people who just move or people who abandon their homes after a disaster. 
So managed retreat has some element of pre-thought planning and coordination, but the exact definition, the field isn't isn't there yet. Well, I've been looking forward to this episode just because there's managed retreat. There's so much to it, and we're going to dig into that. And you've you, you're you've done quite a bit of writing around the subject, but there's so many philosophical discussions you can have around managed retreat. It's really going to be an important issue for the United <laughs> States. So, what kind of brought you to the issue? I mean, really, it's it's not something people have worked on. It, I guess in the climate change capacity for a long time. Yeah, I started working on it after Hurricane Sandy. I was working at the Saban Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. And in the aftermath of that, a lot of people were talking about where we rebuild and how we rebuild and why we should rebuild. And there were very few conversations about should we rebuild? And some people at Columbia were thinking about that. And so I started digging into, well, how could we go about rebuilding? And are there examples from the U.S. where we could learn from those lessons? And that's really what got me interested and starting to think about this is this is an area where there are, as you say, so many philosophical issues. There's legal issues. There's social issues. There's financial problems, ecological problems. It is such a knot of problems. And to me, that's really exciting. (laughs) You've shared some papers with me, and I really like the paper because some papers are darn it quite boring, but I have to read them anyway when I prepare for these <laughs> podcasts. But And it was simply enough called Manage Retreat in the United States. So mm. what was the overall purpose for that paper? The purpose of that paper was really to give an overview of the issue. Their Manage Retreat is an emerging topic. It's something people are starting to talk about a lot. There's a lot more media attention. There's a lot more research attention. There's a lot more practitioners talking about Manage Retreat and trying to bring together what we know about Manage Retreat. So where, what is the academic research that's been done? What is the state of the field? And where are we at? What are the big problems? So the paper is an attempt to introduce someone who is interested in Manage Retreat, or maybe just heard about it for the first time and is trying to figure out what this is, why the U.S. should do it, and how the U.S. should do it, or why hasn't the U.S. done it already. Sort of an introduction and then my thoughts on where manager retreat should go in the future in the U.S. It really actually is quite a readable paper. And it, you, you shared a PDF Thanks. with me, but, <laughs> but is it online? Is it something I can share in my show notes? Uh, yeah, it's available in the journal One Earth. And that's available online for anyone who's interested. Okay, I'll have that in my show notes for sure. When it comes to managed retreat, there actually is a history of, you know, governments being involved with buying people out and helping people move from one at-risk area to hopefully to another. And it's it's not a clean history. It's oftenly a sloppy history. But right now, to kind of give, I mean, I know there's a lot of players, but who really are the sort of major players when it comes to the organized way of doing managed retreat? And I guess I'm talking about government entities and such. Like, who, who are they? The big players in the U.S. federal government are definitely FEMA and HUD, Department of Housing and Urban Development. So those are the two big players. They're the ones who are providing the majority of the funding for buyouts in at-risk states and cities. Sometimes states and cities are providing funding themselves, but the really big players are going to be FEMA and HUD. And so, and so of course, it's just not the federal government. And so, as I was mentioning, there's kind of a history there, which actually can be beneficial, allows sort of researchers like yourself, how have we done this in the past? And I'm thinking of just, you know, uh, storm events and disaster events where, you know, the, the government has gotten involved with trying to move people around. This notion of sea level rise and climate change is a relatively new thing. Is the past the future for us? I mean, uh, how do you kind of look at this sort of track record in informing the work you're doing with Managed Retreat? We definitely study what the federal government has done in buyouts because it's, well, 
it's what we have evidence for and where we can find good lessons learned from the past. In terms of retreating from floods and hurricanes, other storms like that, FEMA's program, Hazard Mitigation Grant Program, that provides funding for buyouts, started up in 1989. So there's good data and research since 1989. Catherine Mock at the University of Miami just led a study that came out recently. Uh, I was one of the co-authors where we reviewed that history of buyouts across the U.S. to try to learn some overarching patterns from that. There's also a number of case studies even predating the FEMA buyouts of communities that relocated as a result of floods, whole communities sometimes from the Midwest especially, where they relocated. And learning from those records and those case studies can also be really important as we think about in the future, communities relocating as a whole. In that paper that you shared that you do have some uh, schematics or sort of like charts that kind of explain how this process <laughs> in a perfect world could unfold. It never unfolds that way, but it's still here is step one, step two. And it's not quite I'm very I'm simplifying it, but it's you can visualize how if you did it right, how it might happen. And the paper that you talked about with Catherine Mock, I think this is very interesting, and we're seeing more of this is sort of how equity issues come into play. And it, it's in all likelihood, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be socially equitable in how it unfolds. And so what what are some of the issues around equity that you're seeing? What what are some of the problems that might come up? Yeah, the, the paper we did, uh, Catherine Mock and others, we did an analysis of all of the FEMA-funded buyouts in the U.S. that we had records of. We found two things that at first glance are going to seem like they're contradictory, but they actually potentially make sense. So what we found is that Counties that are denser, have more people, and who are wealthier and tend to be whiter are more likely to receive money from FEMA for buyouts. And we suggest that this might be because denser, richer counties have more resources, and so they're more able to jump through all the bureaucratic hoops that they need to in order to access resources from FEMA. But then once a county gets funding from FEMA, then the county or the local, the city government is going to make a decision about where do they actually buy up? Which homes inside the county or city do they actually want to offer to purchase? There we looked at zip codes within the county, and we found that the zip codes that are being bought up are actually more rural and tend to be lower income and tend to be have higher percentage of people of color living in those areas. This raises an equity question, and we don't know whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing. All we know right now is that there appears to be this kind of disparate effect. This could be a good thing. It could be that lower income communities who are in at risk places have fewer resources to move on their own. They have fewer resources to build seawalls or do other kinds of protection. So maybe offering them buyouts is actually a very equitable and good decision. But it could also be that this is having a disparate effect in a negative way, that people are going to move through this buyout process and then not be as well off after they move. So we don't have the answers to this yet. All we know is that there's this disparate effect and we really need to try to dig into, is this fair? Is this right? And how are we trying to use our money in a way that helps people to be the best off? Oh boy, that gets complicated fast. And I think, you know, yeah. <laughs> do you penalize a, a community like you were saying, and, and I was reading that, is that you have a more highly functioning government system and it's more highly resourced and there's staffers and planners and all sorts of things when it comes to uh, more, like you said, a denser population. Should that be held against more organized communities? It's just the nature of what happens there. But then the notion of you're, you're low income and you're in a more rural area. If you do manage to move people and you buy them out, 
what comes into play where they relocate? Are you relocating them into another disadvantaged community or no, we're going to stick you in a straight kind of middle class area. It just, uh, yeah. Who, who kind of gets to play God there? Yeah, it's it's a really complicated issue. And it's one where we don't have a lot of answers. And also, I wouldn't want to suggest that I should be the one to make the answers. What I see my role as is trying to pose the question so that people can start having these conversations because whatever decision we as Americans, you know, make or in our local, in our local communities or at a federal level, it should be the result of us thinking about it and doing it purposefully and not just something that emerges. In terms of your question on where people move, this is a really difficult one and there's not much data on it right now. It's an active area of research, but right to date, there are only two studies that have looked at where people actually go after buyouts. One of those was in Staten Island, Devin McGee, did research on where people went after the Staten Island buyouts after Hurricane Sandy. And she found that 20% of the people who took a buyout moved to another floodplain. We don't have any evidence that they're any safer after that buyout. And she also found that 98% of people who took that buyout moved into an area with higher poverty rates. Now, that's important because the economic literature has shown that particularly families with children, if you move to an area with higher poverty, your children have a reduced expected income over the rest of their lives. And I often think about that in terms of schools. You move to an area that's lower income, their schools have fewer resources, so your children may not do as well as they would have if you'd stayed in the richer neighborhood. This you know, speaks to all kinds of different inequities in our society, but it really raises questions about where are people going and are they better off and how do we measure, how do we understand if they're better off or not? So the field is still very much looking at these questions and trying to find answers to them because we don't have them yet. I, I want to get into this later, but the notion of managed retreat or st strategic retreat there to solve equity issues versus just solving the issue of getting people out of that dire, life-threatening situation. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. People are... Not yeah, they're not going to, I mean, it's, I would like to see that sort of kind of equity thing come into play, but I just, yeah, I just know probably how things will unfold, but I, I'm, yeah. jump, I'm jumping the gun here. Let's talk about a kind of a best case scenario. And, and one of the examples you used in your paper was this Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Here's a case study of managed retreat and how it went. Can you, yeah, give some background on that. Yeah. Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin is a smallish town in Wisconsin. It's on the Kickapoo River. And in the 1970s, they had a series of major floods and the town flooded over and over again. And the number of residents, they uh, had a study with the local university and they thought, started thinking about what can we do? And eventually they started thinking about the idea of what if we moved? And so the entire town, they moved the business district and most of the residents into a new place that was slightly farther away from the river. The reason I think this is such an interesting example is because they moved away from the river but they didn't just move away from the river. They also moved towards the freeway so that they would get more business coming through so that their business district could thrive. They also, when they moved, they dug a new well. So now their well isn't getting contaminated every time the floods come through as it was in the old location. They invested in new resources that would help their aging population and would help attract new, younger residents. I think it's so exciting because they took what could have been just an existential threat. We're being flooded. We have to move. And they made it into an opportunity to say to themselves, how could we build a thriving community that happens to involve relocating? <laughs> but the real focus is how do we build a thriving community? 
And that's why I think it's such a, a great example of managed retreat. Most of their efforts were targeted around city-related resources and buildings and downtowns and commercial areas, but th- were they focusing on residential properties too within the same area? They did. So they also relocated a number of homes and residences, but people had the option. So some people chose to stay and sort of elevate their homes or defend them in place, and then others moved with the new business district. I should also add that one thing they did that was exciting back in, in 1979 when they relocated is they actually put in a new ordinance so that their downtown would use solar power. So they became known briefly as Solar City because they uh, had so much solar power. I mean, 1970s Wisconsin, that's pretty forward thinking. Okay, so this is 1979. I didn't catch that. And who was involved with funding? Was this sort of a city-led efforts, local, you know, local taxes, or was a FEMA involved? Did, did, what, what role did funders play? It was a combination of funds. So the locals provided some funding, states provided some funding, and then also they got dedicated funding from Congress. Uh, after they experienced a number of severe floods, they actually got some of their congressional representatives out to the town to witness the effects that the flood had had on their town. And so secured some federal funding to help with the relocation as well. Okay, so that's great. Great story. And my (laughs) first reaction is just how I would approach that is how this doesn't apply to most of the rest of the country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it does and it doesn't. Right. Moving a small town in Wisconsin doesn't necessarily tell us how to relocate neighborhoods in New York City. Right. Very different conditions. But it does tell us about a lot of the small towns that are all along the rivers in the Midwest that are all along the coast outside of these major towns. The United States actually has a lot of small and mid-sized towns where people are living, and those are going to relocate as well. It also tells us about some of the challenges. When we look at these examples, we can see commonalities that do apply to places like New York City, Miami, Houston, which are that they have to coordinate a number of different government agencies. So they have to work with state and local and federal agencies to try and get this through. They have to have leadership, so they really need someone to champion this issue and to drive it forward in the community. They need a good vision, so it can't just be about moving away from the floods. It also needs to be about moving towards something exciting and something good for their long-term benefit. So those are all important lessons that do apply all across the country. Okay, I'm going to make you dust off your Minus Retreat 101 a bit here. There are three areas of coastal adaptation, and it's resist, accommodate, and retreat. I'm guessing, especially the places really close to the coast, ultimately most of these places are going to have to pursue retreat out of those three different approaches that you can take. And I'm wondering, why should we allow even those first two to happen? And if you could, for my listeners, give some examples of what resist might look like and accommodate might look like. If we were really trying to take managed retreat seriously at a federal and state level, you think we would avoid resist and accommodate altogether? Resist and accommodate are by far the most common adaptation strategies in the United States. So resistance, (laughs) resistance, hands down, building seawalls, renourishing beaches, like just putting more sand on the beach to make it wider, building up redunes. So each time a store comes through and it destroys the dunes and then we go back and dig up more sand and rebuild those dunes, that's resistance. Resistance is trying to keep the water, prevent the water from reaching the homes. So that's resistance. You put a barrier between the home and the water. Uh, We see this especially in dense urban areas. New York City, the seawall around Galveston in Texas, Miami is trying to build some seawalls. Those are all resistance activities. Accommodation is about letting the water come in, but trying to prevent or limit the harm. So classic example is elevating your home. You put your home up 10 feet. The water can come and go, but you're living snugly up on the second floor. 
these are by far, as I said, by far the most common strategies in the United States. Managed retreat is just starting to be used, <laughs> just starting to get awareness as that maybe, maybe these aren't working so well. And one of the reasons is that, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that resistance and accommodation are, can be incredibly expensive, right? Building all these walls, incredibly, incredibly expensive. Massachusetts did a survey recently of its coastline and all of the areas that have been shoreline armored and realized that 80% of their coastal armoring was not maintained to a standard that would actually provide safety and that it would cost something around the order of $30 million a year just to hit the high priority targets. It's a very expensive venture to say, let's build a wall and then let's maintain it for forever. It's also a very expensive venture to say, let's put beach, let's put sand on a beach to make it wider. And then every time a storm hits, we're going to have to do it again because the storm will wash away that sand. Elevating homes sounds great because I can say you're safe on a second floor, but how do you get to work if the road is flooded? That water that's underneath your home, it often has contaminants. It often has fecal material. There's a lot of more research coming out on that. It can cause severe health issues because you're exposed to all of those things that are in the floodwaters. Just because you're upstairs and safe doesn't mean that there are no consequences to being in the flood zone. Manage retreat, I believe, is, as you say, like the long-term strategy. Eventually, in a lot of these places, we're going to have to move back because building walls and nourishing beaches won't be enough. But building walls and nourishing beaches do something really important, which is that they buy us time to figure out how to do manage retreat well. So I'm going to push you on this a little bit. So resist and accommodate, mm -hmm. like a place like New York City, I get it. New York City is not mm -hmm. going anywhere even in the long term. They will build a bigger and bigger seawalls, and I sort of get that. And it's, again, a case-by-case -case basis. And I look at Miami, and they're going to resist. They're going to accommodate, and then they're going to potentially retreat. And I guess back to my original thought is that for those areas that aren't going to have permanent solutions to these things, they're ultimately going to have to retreat. And I know you just sort of said it sort of buys you time, but in some cases – Buying time is just making things more expensive. You're putting off a tough decision. So why should taxpayers oh, – I hate using that term. Why should taxpayers <laughs> allow Miami to exist for an extra 50 to 75 years if if six or seven feet of sea level rise comes? It's There's not much they can do to, to accommodate that. I actually think that this is one of the reasons we need to start thinking about managed retreat right now is so that we limit the costs of people being in these areas. I agree. Climate Central and Zillow did a study on where people are building in the floodplains. So Florida, New Jersey, and North Carolina alone have added 9,000 homes in the floodplains since 2010. That means there are 9,000 more families, 9,000 more buildings, all in places where we know that they're going to be at risk. Should we? I agree. Should we as Americans all be paying to protect homes that were built in a place that we know they probably shouldn't have been built? Hmm. <laughs> that raises some real Challenges. And I think that goes back to the equity question, too. A big challenge in manager retreat is who should pay. Well, I was going to get to that. Who's going to pay? That, <laughs> I think. <laughs> but, but this is also related to some things that you mentioned in that paper is that what do you mean that managed retreat needs to be viable at scale? And I think it kind of speaks to some of these things we're talking about. Yeah. So the National Climate Assessment that came out in 2018 says that there's 49 million housing units in coastal areas in the United States. And there's $1.4 trillion worth of infrastructure within 700 feet of the coast. So those are large numbers. And since 1989, FEMA has spent something between $2 and $4 billion on retreat. And they've relocated over 40,000, between 40 and 45,000 homes. So in the last 30 years, we've managed to relocate 
45, let's say, thousand families. And we need to think about 49 million housing units. Even if just one tenth of those 49 million housing units need to relocate, that's a massive shift in scale from what we've done to what we would need to do in the future. The same thing with cost to go from 2 billion to 1.4 trillion. Even a tenth of that is an exponential increase in what we've done. We need to think about doing managed retreat at a much larger scale than we've done it in the past. And that probably means that we both need to scale up what we've been doing and that we need to explore different ways of doing managed retreat. So not just doing larger, more frequent buyouts, but actually thinking about other ways to approach the problem entirely. Okay, so are you seeing, especially in maybe some of the academic research, are, are there creative ways maybe to fund these things, fund managed retreat? And I, you, there's things, you know, existing tools like transfer development rights and economic tools like that, but are, are things popping up on how to make this easier? And I guess tools that local governments and the ones who are really going to have to deal with this, that they can start using. This is another area that's emerging, but doesn't have many answers yet. There's consensus that we need to get the private sector engaged. So getting businesses involved, getting the insurance and the reinsurance industry involved would go a long ways towards helping finance some of these relocations. Communities have come up with creative ways to fund portions of buyouts. Stormwater management fees are a big one. A number of communities, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, is using stormwater management fees to develop a fund that they use to acquire properties after disasters in flood-prone areas. Communities in Iowa used sales taxes so they could tax people who came to visit their community or do business in their community. They use that money to help fund relocations. Local governments are trying to come up with creative ways of raising the funds, but this comes back to the question of who should pay. Should it be the local community who's paying for their own relocation? Should it be the state government who's helping them relocate, the federal government who's helping them to relocate and spreading that cost across all Americans? These are questions that haven't really been addressed yet in the field. Somewhat related to that, but I want to do a little bit of a pivot here. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking about these costs associated with moving and politics are going to play <laughs> so much of a role in all this. And let's Break it down to, to kind of two sides. You have the sort of the conservative or the liberal approach or free market approaches versus socialistic approaches, meaning big government approaches. And here we're getting to the philosophical kind of ideas around managed retreat. How do you think those two sides might ultimately play out? And I think FEMA playing a big role. There you go. That's a kind of a big government approach to it. But uh, the free market, how, how do you think that that might play out? Because especially you're going to have a lot of tension. You're going to have a lot of pushback saying, you know what? The government should not be involved with this. Absolutely. There's, I think that either approach could work. You could either do it with big government, very socialist approach, or you can do a very free market, private sector based approach. The problem is right now in the United States, we're kind of in this middle ground. We're left in no man's land where we're doing a little bit of big government and a little bit of private market forces, and we're not leaning enough in either way. So we have the worst of both cases. So as an example, the free market private sector approach would say something like, you built a house in the floodplain, you are responsible for the risk, you can get private insurance, and you handle those issues. Now, that's fine, except that we have a public federal national flood insurance program that's federally subsidized. The government's already involved, is already subsidizing risk in these areas. Uh, we also have a lot of disaster recovery money that goes into these areas that helps subsidize the risk of living in these places. To say suddenly to people who already live there, we're suddenly going to withdraw all of that government support 
would leave a lot of people in a lurch. It would leave them left with very few options and very few resources to do something better for themselves. So to switch to an entirely market-based approach would be very, very difficult. Conversely, going to an entire big government approach is going to have huge amounts of resistance, and it's going to be incredibly expensive. There's a lot of resistance to moving in that direction of just saying the government's going to tell you where you can live, and the government's going to tell you how you have to build your house, and the government's going to decide when you can't live there anymore. Yeah, there's going to be immediate pushback against that. So we could do it either way, but being stuck in the middle like we are right now, that's what's not working. Yeah, I'm on the fence on this. I, <laughs> I just, there's two different approaches, and I think of people making poor decisions. And you know, the the government actually has to kind of be bold in this notion of well, people are living there now, or people bought homes, so why should they have to be penalized? They need to just establish like a, a year one, right? Going forward from here on out, if you choose to buy a home in Florida, you are not going to have any access to any of these Spanish retreat funds and insurance funds and all that. You know, make some big bold moves like that. Mm. <laughs> here I am saying this on my podcast, but <laughs> the, the whole notion of free market approaches. I think of what what happened, and I've mentioned this before, like in the Midwest, let's say heavy industries, steel industry, those things just started dying out. And I just don't think the the federal government played a big role. These sort of the, the market forces naturally played out, and it just had these. Sh- big effects on these communities and they, it took them decades to kind of re reimagine themselves but it's still you know the government didn't come in and say we're just going to give you these jobs anyway that we don't necessarily need whereas you were sort of describing fema and those government programs allowing people to keep rebuilding in flood zones and living in areas that have should have been abandoned long ago and i look at those big macro free market things that happen. And yes, it got people out of inefficient areas. And is that going to have to play out when it comes to managed retreat in coastal areas? It's sort of that tough love kind of thing. And again, I don't know if I'm recommending this, but I just, you know, these things have played out in in other ways, these big experiments. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, because we do need bold action on this. We really do need bold leadership and we need something completely different than what we've been doing. So there's got to be a change. One of the challenges, though, in doing that kind of hands off. All right figure it out for yourself community is that a number of these communities who are at risk, some of the most vulnerable places in the United States in terms of flooding and damage are also historically disadvantaged. They're Native American tribes who live where they do because they were avoiding the trail of tears. They're former enslaved peoples who were brought over and now have formed communities on the coast. And to just say, well, nope, you live there now, like we're done, mm, isn't quite right. Right. That doesn't sit well, very well. On the other hand, you have these parts of the coast where, yeah, it's millionaires building their third vacation home. Absolutely. (laughs) We should be saying you live there. You should really pay a higher insurance premium (laughs) because you live in an at risk area. So I think there has to be some combination of the two. And I think it has to be a recognition of the different types of coastal communities that exist in the United States. Right. When you talk about coastal Mississippi and the Gulf and you talk about the Hamptons up on the coast in New York, those are radically different conditions, and they're going to require radically different approaches. Yeah, I, I think I read somewhere. I don't think it was in your paper, but it just talked about some home in Mississippi or, or Arkansas that was rebuilt eight or nine times. They spent about $700,000 rebuilding it over and over again, and the house itself was worth about $70,000. It's worse than that. They, they have a number from one home in Mississippi, 34 times it's been rebuilt in the last 32 years. And... <sighs> This is an area where it's actually really interesting because it's it gets bipartisan support. You can talk to both Republicans and Democrats about why we need to help communities not do this. 
right? It's fiscal conservative. Don't spend government money to rebuild the home for the 35th time in the flood zone. Like, you know, fiscal conservatives can get on board with that. So it is something that's really important and I think can be interesting because it can get bipartisan support behind it. If we could just figure out a way to to do this that was cost effective and equitable. And that's going to be the challenge. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do a little bit more of a pivot, but we're going to come back to these big government solutions in, in, in a little bit because I, I love talking about that stuff. <laughs> uh, when we talk about managed retreat, so much of it has to do with just the actual people and getting them out of these homes at risk and maybe moving them somewhere else. But part of the story when you move these communities, it's not just like someone living in a house. It's like the whole area, the commercial areas, everything is potentially going to be flooded. And I, and I've used Miami over and over again. And I think of all the gas stations and all this sort of EPA Superfund sites that will be inundated or they need to be sort of mitigated the, the environmental impact. How does that kind of play out in the managed retreat conversation that you're having? You know what I'm saying? Cleaning up the mess that you're leaving kind of thing. The communities that are left, well, the land that's left behind is actually very rarely part of the conversation. And that's a big problem. It needs to become part of the conversation. We treat managed retreat right now as though as soon as the people leave and the buildings leave, that the land ceases to exist. It's just no longer a thing. And of course, it does exist. And as you say, it might have a Superfund site on it that's leaking toxic toxins every time it floods or you know, it might have infrastructure on it that needs to be taken care of. So there's a big push, I think, right now in practice to think about how we can do this better. Uh, Elise Zavar has done a great paper looking at buyout sites in the United States and how the land was actually used after the homes were acquired and demolished and the land was maintained as open space. And she found that the majority of the time, the land is just empty. Like maybe the local government mows the grass, but that's it. Sometimes it's turned into really exciting things. It can become a community park. It can be a garden. It can be a wetland restoration area, something interesting, but most often just left empty and not being put to any good use at all. So this is an area where we definitely need to improve in the U.S. Someone must have done it, but there you just look at sea level rise model maps, these bathtub model maps and three feet sea level rise, five feet. How much, how many pollution sites, official pollution sites are, are inundated? Have you heard of anyone? I mean, someone must have done that, right? I feel like someone must have done this, but I haven't seen the research on it. Jesse Keenan and I have a paper coming out that actually looks at North Carolina and where North Carolina is doing buyouts, where they're doing seawall armoring and where they're doing beach nourishment. And we actually found no correlation between where those protections are going and between the location of toxic sites or landfills or even critical infrastructure like fire stations and hospitals. It actually seems to be a real concern right now that that kind of critical infrastructure in those hazardous sites, they may not be playing a big enough role in informing how we respond to coastal adaptation. That sounds like a great paper. I'm looking forward to that. I, I still think that's sort of an un, that's talked about enough, but I think that's an unfocused on part of this managed retreat conversation is the big fat mess left behind and the costs that mm -hmm. could, those costs could dwarf the cost of actually moving the people. So. It's, it's a huge problem. And we see it even in, there's several Alaska native villages that are trying to relocate due to coastal erosion and other issues. And one of the big expenses in relocating those communities is the infrastructure. If some of these communities are only accessible by airplane. So when you build a new community, you're not just building houses and a school and a post office or a church. You're building a runway, a whole airport, maybe a whole fishing port. And that can get very expensive very quickly. So we're going to go down a rabbit hole here because I love 
doing these things. And uh, as I've said, and you, this is, you've made a career out of it, pondering what managed retreat and backing it up with research. Of course, I get just to ponder what managed retreat really means for society. And I was thinking about this. Uh, what about the, the notion of mandatory or forced evacuations? This, the, you know, event, evacuation of a coastal area normally we associate with a big storm event, a hurricane. And I was thinking about it, the similarities that might align with the whole managed retreat conversation. And I want to read something to you here. Hold, just bear with me. And urgency, obviously, I know plays the difference between evacuation and managed retreat. But I came across this paper, The Challenge of Mandatory Evacuation, Providing for and Deciding for. And it was in the journal Health Affairs. And here's the, just a passage. Insufficient attention has been given to the ethical and legal questions surrounding mandatory evacuation and disasters and emergencies. We argue that mandatory evacuation orders entail a governmental duty both to provide for people and to decide for people. Government must trigger the provision of critical resources as well as vigorous and persistent efforts to persuade reluctant citizens to leave. I thought that was very relevant to our conversation and this notion of someone else is going to decide for you. At what point do we take this issue of managed retreat seriously enough? I actually think that's a great point. And there's two aspects I'd like to think about with that. So with mandatory evacuations, even when there's a mandatory evacuation in place, many people don't leave. And I think some people don't leave for the same reason that people don't want to think about managed retreat. It's about risk awareness. Do they really understand the risk that they're facing? There's a huge problem in the United States of people understanding their risk. We talk about the 100-year floodplain, and people think that means that they're only going to be flooded once every 100 years, when actually it means that there's a 1% chance that you're going to be flooded. So over the course of a 30-year mortgage, you actually have a 1 in 4 chance of being flooded. right? And if we talked about it that way, if we said 1 in 4 chance in a mortgage, people might relocate. The same way with hurricanes. When you look at that evacuation, are you evacuating? Well, I don't really think I'm at risk. And they don't necessarily understand how much they're at risk. In terms of when are we going to get to the point where we actually just force people to go? Canada's doing this, actually. So they're doing buyout programs somewhat similar to the United States, except they're requiring. They're saying, we're going to buy your house and you are going to leave. <laughs> and there's no discussion. There's no offer you know, and acceptance. In the United States, the government can offer to buy your home and then you can refuse right now. Now, the United States could do mandatory. We could use eminent domain and the government could just say, this is a health and safety issue and you're no longer allowed to live here. We'll pay you the value of your home. You can relocate somewhere else, but not here. I do think at some point, at some point we're going to get there. At least it could get there. And in some ways, I think that would be a better answer than just letting market forces take over completely. Because in some places, we're going to have people who are continue to live on the coast, have no resources to leave on their own, and might end up sort of stuck. And if the government can come in and say, we're going to pay for your home, and then you're going to leave, they may not want to, they may not like it, but at the very least, it will not be financially devastating for them when they have to leave. And that could be better than having them just stay and lose everything. You know, I think this is, these are philosophical questions that society has to have. And I think in the paper, you, you talk about that. But I, I just think this notion of this 
I, I think what you're sort of encouraging too is like we're sort of this, in this experimental phase. And, I, and you did mention we need to get started on this sooner rather than later, and, and that means actually today. But this notion of really this this high level for, will the government and and I, I really do love the 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 association with evacuation because you know there's there's so much precedent for looking at how we've evacuated areas, right? And what laws? How did how was there federal, state, local government integration and local police officers? And it just seems there's talk about teamwork and some areas do it better than others. I think Florida, to their credit, has had so much experience that they do it relatively well. And so when a hurricane hits, you know, any loss of life is obviously tragic. But, oh, it's five people, ten people. And that's why I think New Orleans, there was there was such a catastrophic level because they just weren't used to it and they just didn't, weren't ready. Whereas Florida, here's a, here's an example of an, an integrated system. It minimized the amount of people that died in the storm event. And we got to take that approach with managed retreat. And that means – that's that's my next pivot for you. We'll see what you have to say about this. No one really wants to admit this, but President Trump really <laughs> we had to go there. President Trump. Listen, I'm not getting into politics too much, but this, this open the door when it when it comes to emergency declarations, right? He has used that power in ways that most of us are are you crazy talking about an abuse of power? But some of the courts have upheld some of the things that he's doing. On what we think are not appropriate topics, but let's say when it comes to issues like managed retreat, well, okay, maybe we need to take it to that level of emergency declarations where you're having this sort of really high level power come into play instead of falling, instead of sort of this voluntary approach to doing things. It's like, how serious are we around this issue? And maybe that is a regulatory mechanism that should be pondered. And again, this is fraught with, oh, well, you know, Siders has taken this position on Trump. No, it's, it, you would not, <laughs> this is a philosophical discussion of powers and the, the ability to overcome bureaucracy and taking an issue more seriously. And it's, well, okay, an emergency declaration around managed retreat. Should we do it? I don't know if I support an emergency declaration around managed retreat. Managed retreat in the U.S. right now already happens in places where presidential declarations of disaster, like disaster declarations have occurred. So there's already a recognition that these are major disaster areas. And what we need is some guidance from the federal government that once that major disaster has occurred, rebuilding is not going to be the priority. It's going to be building in a different way. And I do think we need federal policy on this and federal guidance on this. And I'd love to see Congress actually take action on this because it's going to require, I think, more than just one executive, but actually a really coordinated and slightly more democratic process about what we want the coast to look like in the future. In in part of the pondering of using an emergency declaration for managed retreat, I'm sure a lot of the existing things that you just described would kind of come into play anyway. So how would it be really that different? But to me, the sort of the awareness building like benefit of this is really serious. Look what the president has done. Who knows? You know, again, it's sort of like communicating the issue at a broader level and just getting everyone to start thinking about it differently. And so, I, I, again, there's issues of abuse of power and all that. But at some point, all of us are going to be like yeah. climate change is serious. So we're going to start taking it serious. And a first step to that might actually be to have our political leaders not themselves own or live in flood prone areas. Uh, <laughs> right. that, that could be a first step even before some federal declarations. I mean, you want to show you're serious. Don't buy, build or live in the floodplain. That would be one way of showing that you're serious about this issue. 
Good. We 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 touched upon <laughs> emergency declarations. I, I had to tick it off on my box. <laughs> so I, I I think we're in the final zone here, but I, I wanted to pivot again and talk about some of these sort of solutions and some things that you're working on. But there was a big managed retreat workshop at Columbia University in in the early summer, and I got to go just for like the the introduction of it, but I didn't get to stick around for all the presentations and stuff. But what what was that workshop all about? Yeah, Columbia University hosted a retreat workshop. So at what point manage retreat? And actually, they had 150 presentations on manage retreat and manage retreat related issues, which was fantastic. One of the most frequent comments I heard from people at the conference was actually surprised that there were 150 people working on these issues because it's, it is really an emerging area. So it was incredibly encouraging to see so many people working on these efforts. The number of times I've had to answer you today with, we don't know yet, <laughs> right? We need smart people working on these issues in order to fill in those gaps so that future efforts can learn from those successes and failures and, and data points. So there were all kinds of presentations on the legal aspects, economic pieces. There were presentations from the insurance industry, presentations from community members, indigenous leaders, all different kinds of perspectives on how managed retreat should happen, could happen, could be done better in the future. Well, I got to wander around a little bit during some of the break time, and it really was a kind of a who's who of some of these, the, the people doing work related to this. It was just a, a treat talking to all these folks. But now that you've been involved, and I think you deal with a wide universe of people in this area, who was kind of missing from that event? Actually, yeah, uh, Jola Ajibad and I are putting together a book proposal on finding the unheard voices of managed retreat, because there are a lot of communities who are not being heard right now on these topics, which includes artists, poets, photographers. It includes heritage managers, climate heritage, people who are thinking a lot about relocation or how you document things that can't be saved or moved. We need more community leaders to give more perspectives from the local area. Uh, engineers who actually are involved in relocating a lot of that infrastructure and the buildings, how that can be done. Landscape architects, how do we use the land? Ecologists, how do we use the land afterwards in a beneficial way? Uh, religious leaders, faith organizations who are helping communicate these issues with people and helping them deal with the community relocation. Managed retreat is wonderful and complicated because it touches on so many aspects of our lives. And so almost everybody needs to be at the table. Uh, doctors, psychologists, the mental health aspects, the health aspects of relocation, educators for the school systems. The list is kind of endless. So really, the answer is everybody needs to be at the table. And so we're still missing a lot of voices in that discussion. Well, it was an encouraging first step. Mm -hmm. you've, you've talked about some of the solutions that need to happen. A lot of it has to do with just reforming existing things like how FEMA operates and such. But new things that kind of come out. I, I don't know if you've had a chance to kind of ponder this, but does the Green New Deal legislation address managed retreat even kind of in indirectly? Is it an opportunity there? I haven't seen anything on manager retreat in the Green New Deal. It was really encouraging at the Climate Town Hall and some of the conversations to hear presidential candidates acknowledge that this might be an issue in the future. It, it's a huge change from when we heard, you know, rebuild back, build back stronger, sort of those rallying cries to go to move from that into a conversation where we say, yeah, some areas we might need to retreat at some point in the future. Let's start planning for that. So I haven't seen it in the Green New Deal. But I think it's starting to emerge and we need more emphasis on the just transition conversation. There's a lot of discussion about just, just transitions in the Green New Deal and how we're going to help people transition 
from a mitigation standpoint, but we also need a conversation about just transitions when we think about adaptation. When we think about transitioning the entire U.S. coast or river front properties and doing something completely different with that space, there needs to be a conversation from how we get from our current standpoint, which is not equitable, into a future standpoint that we hope is equitable. And how do we make that transition just? So I think there's a lot we can learn from the Green New Deal, even if it doesn't mention men's retreat specifically. Okay, so before we get to the stage of declaring emergencies in regards to managed <laughs> retreat, in one of your papers, you talk about creating a grand vision for managed retreat, and this idea of a national seashore was brought up. Could you explain that? This is a re- idea that Rosetta Elkin at Harvard's Graduate School of Design and I have been kicking around, and it's this idea that managed retreat can't be about leaving. It has to also be about going somewhere else. And so you need to give people a positive vision. Why should we relocate from our beachfront properties? Why should we go somewhere else? And one idea is to create a national seashore. So the idea is to imagine the U.S. coastline and imagine one football field, two football fields, 200 yards worth of open public beach. Everyone can access the beach. Everyone can go there. Everyone can fish, sit on the sand, whatever people want to do but no one will live or build there. So it'd be incredibly public access, but without putting people at harm's in harm's way. And we propose this as an idea. You know, I'm saying 200 yards. The reality is it might be 20 yards in Manhattan, and it might be two miles in some rural coastal areas. But to have some kind of buffer, and to have that buffer be dedicated public space so that everybody could be reconnected with the ocean and everybody could have access to use the land in a good way. Yeah, I like it. Uh, it <laughs> people need a purpose and sort of that sort of a, a purpose of how we're going to use the coast in this sort of transition time would be awesome. It would hope be a major education initiative too. I like it. Yeah, there'd be a ton of opportunities. At least that's the idea here. It also hopefully would start conversations, right? This is what I want the coast to look like. I would like to see the coast become Public, publicly accessible, open, natural space. And a lot of people don't like that idea. They, they don't like the idea of the national seashore, and that's fine. But it starts a conversation where I can turn around and say, if you don't like the national seashore, great. What do you want the coast to look like, you know, in a hundred years? Do you want the coast to be towns hiding behind giant seawalls, right? Do you want it to be, I, I don't even know, right? What, what is your alternative? So, By throwing out one idea, I hope we can get people behind and excited about this idea. But if not, I'd be excited to hear what other alternatives people have. Okay, and also, this is related to the National Seashore, but you've talked about creative approaches to to dealing with managed retreat, and it was in the paper. And so what do you mean? Like, what what is, what is, you were basically encouraging people to get creative. Yeah, read a lot of climate fiction is one of my recommendations. Climate fiction uh, is Great, as you know, you had a podcast on it recently. Climate fiction is great at helping people understand the risks that they're facing. And it can also be helpful in that it makes people think about the future. Uh, often a dystopian, terrible future, but sometimes a utopian vision. And to think about, is that what we want the future to look like? And what would we need to do now either to avoid that future or to make that future become real? So I think climate fiction really, can be really important. I think poetry and art There's some great performance art on sea level rise that helps people understand the risk that they're facing and that, ah, that's where the sea level is going to be in 50 years. Like you could visually see it in this beautifully aesthetic performance art. 
uh, photographers getting involved. I think that creative people have artists have a lot of creativity. Anyone has creativity, but artists particularly have this kind of creativity. It can bring a new perspective. And that's what we need. If we're not just going to repeat the mistakes that we've done before, we need some new ideas. And so I think the more people and the more creative people we can get thinking on that, the better chance that we'll come up with some good options. Yeah, my, in a recent episode, I had two professional musicians who were inspired to write like a half album around this community in Alaska, Kivalina. They'd never been there, and they don't know anyone mm-hmm. from there. It's a, it's a Native American uh, community there, and they wrote these six lovely songs, and I had them on. We talked about it. So, and just again, it, I I was like, huh, you did this? But it was just artists getting their heads around this issue of climate change and wanting to contribute. So it is kind of fun and exciting how it's happening. It's amazing. There's a great uh, video game from an Alaskan tribe that came and put uh, worked with some indie video game developers and they put together a video game about how climate change is affecting their community and their cultural values. Uh, there's games coming out, uh, board games that are using strategy to help convey indigenous knowledge from the Arctic. All kinds of these interesting different ways of thinking about the issue and thinking about communicating the issue I think are really important. Yeah. You also talk about, and this is I, I like to think I with my podcast, I'd like to reach a wider audience, but what are some ways that we need to communicate this? And like you said, people like you are deeply thinking around this issue of managed retreat, or research, and offering local governments ways forward. But as you're doing that, society at large really needs to communicate that this is going to happen and just warm people up to the notion. So do you have any sort of recommendations along that line? I think big communication efforts are around understanding risk. So updating FEMA maps, improving on the flood maps. The FEMA maps aren't, aren't, aren't the end all of risk communication. We need something, something better than that to help people understand the risk that they face, not only today, but 30 or 40 years down the road, right? If you're buying a home with a 30 year mortgage, you need to know if that home is going to be literally underwater, pardon the pun, you know, in 30 years. And, and that's an important decision tool. So a lot of communication around that. I also think we need more communication within communities about what they want the community to look like in 50 or 100 years, right? If we're all sitting down and building seawalls, is that the future we want? The future where these seawalls affect the beach, affect the nature of our town, eventually cut us off from the ocean. Is that the future that we want for our town? If we want a different future of our town, what does that look like? And what steps do we need to take now in order to make that future happen? Those kind of planning conversations are really difficult to have, but they can also be incredibly empowering for communities when they start realizing what it is that's important to them about their community and how they can not only help it survive, but really help it thrive in the future if they take steps to right now. And the federal government has given up a lot of its powers to educate the public, you know, public service announcements. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, we saw those all the time, but they, they transitioned out of using those too much. But a managed mm-hmm. retreat, public service announcement. And I think this is a lot of this like local communities. It's it's a confidence. They're so worried about offending someone. But if you're at the beach and I think Miami's doing some creative things, but like you're at the beach, there's a managed retreat billboard that people can yeah. kind of get basics of. And just- I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I, I think that's, uh, I had Karen Bolter on. She's a sea level rise person. And they, in Miami, they had these things where it's just, they had these poles in the water. And it's like, this is what three additional feet is going to look like and how much higher. And just help people visualize, even if they're walking yeah. by and they're eating a hot dog, it's just like those moments, awareness building. And I think we're just so scared of offending. I think what it is is a minority in this country who just really complain the loudest, but we, we need to get some confidence back. Well, there's also big money behind it, right? 
when cities come out and they say, here are the areas that are going to be underwater, I mean, that has a huge implication for the real estate market. There's a lot of money invested in that. And so there's some real powerful players who honestly maybe don't want people to know about all of the risk that everyone's facing or whether or not their home is really viable in 30 years. So there also needs to be some changes in the responsibility that people are facing when they make those decisions. So, yeah, I think there's a huge amount of risk communication. I love the idea of a billboard. I'd love to see a short YouTube video that explains how buyouts work so that, you know, when you receive a buyout offer from the local government, you have some idea of how that works and what it is and why it's happening. Uh, I think there's a lot of room for that kind of public communication to improve. A couple more questions here. What, what are your students doing around this issue? I'm teaching a climate change adaptation policy class this fall. And so I have 17 students from undergrads through PhDs, and all of the students are doing a case study where they're evaluating a climate adaptation effort in the United States. So a few of them are doing projects looking at, well, some of them are doing projects looking at elevating homes in response to floods. Uh, one student is looking at recharge wells as a way to address saltwater intrusion. Other students are looking at the use of trees and green infrastructure to help with flooding. Uh, another student's looking at painting roads white in Los Angeles and how that's helping with heat island effect or, or if it is. And so some students are looking at managed retreat and specifically looking at buyout programs in the United States. Uh, students are looking at Tulsa, Nashville, Charlotte, North Carolina, a community in Louisiana, and one community in New Jersey. So kind of all over the U.S. looking at their different experiences and how the buyout has worked and what's been done with the land afterwards, how well has this happened. It's been very interesting throughout the class to see the students as they engage and learn about each other's projects. We just had an exercise where the students sat down and talked to someone else about their project. And a number of the students who are working on things like raising roads or planting trees came to the realization that this might be a great adaptation, but it's temporary. It'll only work for a few decades at best. Whereas relocating a home can be permanent, can be a adaptation that has long-term lasting effect. And so for me, it's been interesting to see students who were initially perhaps very opposed to the idea of managed retreat start to see it as a viable option the more they learned about it. And that goes back to the communication aspect. I think the more people learn about what this really entails, the more they can see it as a reasonable approach for some places in the U.S., I bet I have a lot of student listeners. You're going to probably hear from someone. And are, are you taking graduate students around this issue? I'm sure so many people are trying to find their way into the adaptation space at the universities. Is that what you're doing right now? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I'm actually just standing up my research lab at the University of Delaware with the Disaster Research Center, the Geography Department, and the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. So, yeah, if you're a graduate student interested in climate change, adaptation, disasters, public policy or geography, let me know. I'm definitely looking for great people to work with. Oh, well, I, yeah, I bet you what uh, you will hear some people <laughs> I hear from students all the time. How do I get into adaptation? I'm like, I'm not sure. <laughs> no, that's not true. I talk to them all the time. OK, so as a final wrap up here, I've got two questions and one of them is a relatively new question and I'm asking people can you name one person and I and I mean one the last person gave me four <laughs> one person that's been highly influential to you in the adaptation space has there been some sort of mentor or overall like it's, it, you might not even know this person but is, is there one person and why oh there's so many picking one is the difficulty absolutely Damn, I'm trying to just what? get to one for you I know. <laughs> I 
I, I'm not sure I can give you one, but I can give you two. Oh, okay, but <laughs> two, but they're they're related. All so right. my my two would be Klaus Jacobs at Columbia University and Oren Pilkey in North Carolina, because their work really influenced me. Klaus talks a lot about the need for retreat and the problems that we have with resisting and accommodating in the U.S. And Oren Pilkey's done some of the really foundational work on retreat in the U.S., thinking about it from the aspect of the beach and the ecosystems and then communities and how they should be retreat. So these were really the first two voices I ever heard push manage retreat or think about retreat. And so that has had a huge effect on my career. Okay, I'll accept that. (laughs) (laughs) And last question, who would you recommend to come on the podcast that I should talk to? Have you talked to Michael Gerard? He's the head of the Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University. I have not. Uh, So he, I mean, lawyer, a lot of work on the legal aspects, but a lot of work on the legal issues involved in adaptation adapting to climate change. So that could be an interesting perspective from there. It, you don't have to give one. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got that. <laughs> Siders, this has been fantastic. I love having this philosophical conversations around climate change. I don't get to have them enough. And what I hope is that, you know, you and I definitely will be staying in touch, but I would love to kind of do one of those out in the field or kind of case study podcast around managed retreat. So keep that in mind too, as you, you start doing some more work out there thinking, oh, this, this story would be really good. So certainly keep me in mind. I'd love to do those kind of interviews. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And again, thanks for doing what you do and and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for talking about managed retreat and getting the message out there. It's important. Hey, adapters. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Siders. She has become one of the leading experts on the subject and also a leader to get the adaptation community to think more about this emerging issue. Okay, coming up, two of her students, Bridget Lynn and Jennifer Gallagher, they'll join me for these short interviews where they share some of the managed retreat case study work that they've been doing with Dr. Sider's class. But first off, I'd like to thank the University of Florida, Go Gators, for hosting me at a recent science communication workshop in Gainesville that they were leading. They brought me in to talk about climate adaptation, but also about how you can start your own podcast. If you are interested in learning how podcasts can be a science communication tool in the work that you're doing, please reach out. Okay, don't forget to check out the Podcasts in the Classroom initiative we're doing. I've heard from many professors using America Adapts in their classrooms. Consider using it more formally with some discussion guides that have been developed for eight of my episodes. You can find those discussion guides on my website at americadapts.org. Yes, it's a personal mission to get more professors and teachers using podcasts in the classroom. Your students will thank you for it and will compliment your coursework really well. On that note, I'd like to give a shout out to those Harvard students who recently referenced an America Daps episode and some class presentations that they did. They were referencing the Rob Moore episode. I hope you guys got extra credit for that. All right, let's talk with some students here on the pod, Bridget Lynn and Jennifer Gallagher. Hey, Daptors, I am talking with Bridget Flynn, one of Cider's graduate students. Hi, Bridget. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little about yourself. Well, I I just started my master's program. I got here from Oklahoma State, where I finished my bachelor's in political science, and I was focusing on counterterrorism and emergency management. I took this climate change adaptations class. It was sort of an elective class, and I wasn't expecting, like, I didn't know what to expect to get out of it. And it's a projects-based class. We were discussing this project that we were going to do for this class, and... I told uh, Dr. Siders that I was interested in 
managed retreat and she said, hey, you know, you just moved here from Oklahoma. One thing that you might be interested in studying is the buyback program in Tulsa. And I was like, oh, well, I didn't even know there was a buyback program in Tulsa. Like, yeah, let's go back to our roots. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on and working on uh, here in my first couple of months. So I guess we're going to see where that takes me. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. You talked about this project in Oklahoma and Dr. Siders is having the students, I guess, do these individual projects. Really kind of if you can do kind of a quick summary, what is going on in Tulsa? What's what's the project there? Tulsa is on the Arkansas River. And so they've had some the weather in Oklahoma, as everyone knows, is kind of insane. But along with that, Tulsa has this fun little problem of flooding. So they've had, I think they said, in the 15 years going up to 1990, they had nine federally declared flooding disasters. And so that kind of prompted them to get these federal grants and kind of like rethink how they approach you know, how they mitigate for flooding. And so they adopted this kind of like multi-step program that they're doing. So they're buying back homes, they're turning them into parks, and they're also using this kind of like working with the the natural systems of like how the city and the geography works to, and they use this great language that I really love that says they're not fighting nature anymore and they're just, they're they're just not fighting nature and they're trying to find a way to enforce the codes they already have and be smarter about how they adapt instead of just making it more difficult. Okay, no, that's good. Who's really responsible for this? And quite honestly, I didn't know that Tulsa had crazy weather. Is it the city? Is is some federal agency involved? What kind of money is available for this buyout program? So they have two grants. One of them is through FEMA. And then I don't remember the name of the second one off the top of my head. But the the other way they get money is they have this board that is the stormwater mitigation board. And they have this uh, stormwater mitigation fee that goes on to their utility bill. And so I think it's in, somewhere in the range of like $7 or $7.50 a month. And so that money goes into this, this money goes into this investments fund. And that money is then broken down and every month they decide how they're going to spend this money. So whether they go and I, I believe the money that goes for the, the monthly fee isn't used specifically to buy back homes that comes specifically from the FEMA money. But the money that they get from the monthly fee goes to do things like they go to sports fields and high schools and they dig those out and they turn them into, you know, like drainage basins and things like that. Interesting. Do people in Oklahoma, do they actually call this buyout program managed retreat? Do you ever hear that language being used? I have not. I've come across, honestly, not too many articles on this. What I have come across really is whenever there is a flooding event, that's when it says, oh, like Tulsa homeowners are talking about buybacks or talking about federal acquisitions. Like that's the kind of language that they're using. I can't imagine, to be honest, that language like climate change and, you know, federal, like the government's coming to buy back your home would be extremely positive there. <laughs> uh, duly noted. All right. On that note, this notion that you're buying up properties along the river that are likely to be flooded and t- turning those into more parks and such, that's fantastic. 
this can be controversial. It was, I mean, was there a situation where you had maps and it's like, okay, these are the sort of the properties that we need to buy to, to, to do this buyout program. Was there any pushback? Was anyone sort of upset with what was going on there? I haven't actually come across anything like that. The only sort of negative feedback that I've come across is that it takes a while to happen. So the most recent flooding event was, of course, this year. Uh, so in 2019 in the spring and in a meeting when they were talking about, OK, like, what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, you're going to buy back? Are you going to mitigate? Like, what are we going to do here? And they said, well, I mean, buybacks are kind of an option. But it takes a lot of time. Like this isn't something that happens overnight. This is a federal program and it takes, you know, it takes like a long time to do this. So that's sort of the only negative thing that I've come across. These parks, however, I've, I've actually been to these parks. I did live in Oklahoma for four years and I didn't know what they were. Like I didn't know that they were once homes and, you know, whatever before and nobody mentioned it. Nobody said anything. So it seems to be, from my perspective, uh, a positive thing on the community overall that has had relatively little negative feedback. Okay. Yeah. Building more parks. That's a nice selling point. Are you following it now? Is it something you, you think you'll be able to keep track of? Is it an issue of money still being available? Is that about to run out? What's the sense of like what's up next? I'm not sure about money running out per se. I do think this is going to be a long-term thing. Uh, definitely. Tulsa still has, a, you know, clearly evidenced by what happened this spring. There's still a long way to go with flooding and what to do about that uh, all over Oklahoma. But it's not just Tulsa, specifically the city. It's all of Tulsa County. It's Sand Springs. It's Jenks. It's Bixby. It's Muskogee. It's all of those cities that are along the Arkansas River that we need to think about. And so, yeah, I think this is a long-term thing. In terms of money, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm actually in the process right now of going through some data sets. Where are these houses? Where are these neighborhoods? What was the property value type thing? And like evaluating hmm, like what's going on here. So you might have mentioned this, but I, 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 I might have forgotten. Is that was there sort of a, a name for this entire program? But is there a local name that they've used? I haven't come across one. Um, I could just be missing something. I have heard acquisition and buybacks uh, be thrown around. From my understanding, buybacks isn't something that people usually like to say, but it's pretty commonly used. So the one that the city uses is stormwater mitigation or storm hazard mitigation, but that doesn't specifically refer to the acquisitions program that refers more to the mitigation program. Okay, I guess partly what I'm getting at is a term like managed retreat really might be off-putting for people like in, you know, Oklahoma where right. it might you're in the coastal US where it might make more sense and so it'll be interesting as managed retreat unfolds in the coming decades what sort of terminology what sort of names and sort of what you're doing and well what not you're doing but what's happening in Oklahoma is this nature-based approach to moving people around coming up with just a nice softer name for it would be probably quite useful for other communities yeah I think it's just kind of weird to think about you know managed retreat in the sense of a landlocked state like Tulsa and Oklahoma like what, what are you retreating from exactly? Well, there's this braided stream style river. Well, that's not something you necessarily think of. So I think the first step in tackling that is thinking about climate change and flooding in the aspect of Oklahoma and how that's relevant. 
Because when you think of that in Oklahoma, you're like, oh, that's a Miami problem. That's not a here problem. I haven't spent much time in Oklahoma, but I drove from Arizona to Ohio and I had to go straight through the entire length of Oklahoma. I think I went through Tulsa, but I didn't get to stop. But I was supposed to camp just outside of Tulsa. But because of all the rains, like the entire campground was underwater. So <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. All right. Um, I, yeah, it was a lot of water in Oklahoma. Well, OK, a couple more questions here. So what are you planning to do after you graduate? What, what, what sort of a career options for you? I don't actually know quite yet. I just started my master's and my plan is to go through PhD. And so I would like to hopefully stay in research and do maybe a think tank type thing. Okay. No, that sounds good. It will be in high demand. You've moved from Oklahoma to Delaware, but tell me your favorite thing about the University of Delaware or like the campus. What, what What's your favorite thing? So I'm actually an old East Coaster. So I grew up in Maryland and then I went to Oklahoma and I've come back. Hmm. And so I I enjoy being back on the East Coast. You know, the the spunk and the people that are here. I mean, I love Oklahoma, obviously, but the the spirit that Delaware has definitely and definitely being at the the disaster research center has, you know, this sort of long legacy and air about it that really inspires you and gets you really motivated to study disasters. Cool. All right. Well, it's very exciting some of the work that you're doing and I I wish you luck and thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hi, Adapters. I'm talking with Jennifer Gallagher, one of CIDR's undergraduate students. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. Okay, tell me a little bit about your background. What year are you and what are you studying? Yeah, I'm a senior. I have an environmental studies major and I'm in Dr. Siders' climate adaptation class. Okay, so why did you take uh, Dr. Siders' class? Well, I think it was interesting to me mostly because it was focused on looking at climate change from an adaptation perspective, which is definitely something new that a lot of my courses haven't focused on. There's been a lot of focus on mitigation, so I was interested in learning about something new. Let's talk about this project that you're working on. You're working with the the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Tell me a bit about that project and what it entails and what you're looking at. So I'm just looking to sort of evaluate how their buyout program works for their city and if it would be helpful for other cities to model something after it. I'm mostly looking at things like how cost effective it is, how they make their decisions about where to buy out or where to implement other adaptation strategies and assessing like the environmental impact of those buyouts and what they do with the land. Do you know the name of the program they're doing there in Charlotte? Is their official name? It's just their floodplain services program. I guess they have buyouts are one of the strategies that they use. Okay, and so kind of help us visualize when it comes to buyouts. I, I mean, it's it's Charlotte. It's it's not on the coast. These are areas near creeks and rivers, and these are just homes that they're buying out, or they're commercial areas. What what's sort of the target area? Yeah, this they're homes that they're buying out. They do buy out businesses, but a lot of the ones that I've seen, they do post like a list of addresses of where they've bought out, and it does seem to be mostly neighborhoods. So they're really focusing on homes. How, how much money is involved and is the federal government a source of the funding or is the city of Charlotte handling all the all the buyouts? Yeah, so it's actually split. They started the program in 1999 and when they first began it, it was fully FEMA funded using the hazard mitigation grant program funding from FEMA. And they've transitioned not fully, but partially into using local funds. And those local funds come from a stormwater services fee that's charged by their stormwater services department to each homeowner. And that's based on how much 
permeable surface that they have on their property and every homeowner pays that fee and that goes into the the local funding that is involved in the buyouts and it's about I think 48% locally funded and about 40% FEMA funded and the rest of it is either state grants or other sources of funding. Okay, geez, you know all your sources. And I love that the the notion of the more impervious surface you have, the more you pay. That seems completely fair. Yeah. So how many homes have they actually bought out? And is there some sort of broader map where these are the homes we'd like to buy out? What total number or acreage? Or do you, do you have access to that? Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head how many how many homes they've bought out. I'd have to check that. But they do have a list on their website, a list of all the addresses that they have bought out and all the homes and neighborhoods. And they also, they use their own, they developed their own floodplain mapping system that determines where their next properties would be. They do have one through FEMA, but they've also developed their own to help get an idea of which homes they'll need to buy out. There's a citizen education aspect of it that you've gained into too. Could you explain that? Something that I found that's pretty unique about this program, especially watching my other classmates do similar evaluations of buyouts, is that Charlotte has a lot of readily available information on their website. It's really not too hard to go to their stormwater services website and be able to understand why they do buyouts, why they have sort of started this program, what its history has been, and also the other strategies that they might use, such as elevating homes. So if you go on their website, there's a lot of just information available that really explains everything. And I think that's something that's kind of unique because a lot of the times there can be sort of lack of information or lack of transparency, which makes it difficult, especially if you're someone living in that city and you want to know more about it, especially if you're paying for it. I've been looking into as well as just their engagement with the public. And they actually do have an advisory committee of just citizens of Charlotte who work with the stormwater services department and review like their new policies and are able to give input from their perspective. Any of the public educational materials, I guess on that website too, is there any mention of climate change? Is there any context of like things could get worse based on what climate change might cause? Is that part of any of the outreach? Most of what I've seen has focus more specifically talking about just flooding. I haven't, I I can't say for sure that 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 doesn't also exist, but a lot of what I've read about has been focused on the flooding. Just in general, the the buyout program's really not kind of even bringing that up. It's just sort of, all right, these are targeted properties and we're trying to get people out of these homes. Has there been any pushback or frustration from landowners or anyone in the public about this program? That's something that I'm still looking into. It's it's kind of hard to know. I mean, looking at news articles and things, there seems to be this more so people are are looking to see if they'll be able to be bought out to see if they're going to be prioritized. I'm not really sure how many homeowners they have that reject the offer for a buyout. That's not something I really know. But it, it seems that the program has only really grown since it started. So. I would imagine it's something that's had a pretty positive reception. It's a voluntary buyout program, not a mandatory one. Yeah. Yes, it's voluntary. Okay. I'm going to have some resources in my show notes that people can check this out a bit more if they're interested. But for you, you're an undergraduate student. You're a senior. Uh, What's next? Do you think you're going to get into this area of adaptation planning? Yeah, I'm not sure yet. I think it's something that's sort of new to me with this class, but I've definitely become very interested in it. I'm not 100% sure what's next, but somewhere down the road, I'm interested in graduate school. And I think this would be an interesting topic to keep studying. 
Okay, though you're a senior, though what's next? Do you have, do you have any? Are you going to be a, a ski bum somewhere or travel to Europe? I mean, do you have any immediate professional plans? Yeah, I'm actually going to be interning with an organization called the Land Conservancy in New Jersey, which is my home state. Oh, well, awesome. That's a nice transition. Yeah. One last question here is, can you tell me your favorite thing about the University of Delaware, be it uh, some spot or a class you took, just something, you know, not a lot of people know about University of Delaware. What, What could you share about your favorite thing about it? Sure. Well, last semester, I took a really cool class. That was on controlled indoor and urban agriculture. And I was able to work with my group to build like a hydroponic system, which was really cool. And something that I didn't know about before I took that class is the resources we have with the greenhouse, which is on our south campus. So sadly, a lot of the time when people see our campus, I don't know if they really see our south campus, which is where the College of Agriculture is. And they have the greenhouse and botanical gardens down there. And I think it's a really cool spot. So anyone who visits UD should definitely look at check that out great great answer thank you so much thanks for sharing the information on Charlotte and uh, good luck with what you're doing thank you okay adapters that is a wrap thanks to Siders for coming on what a fun and informative conversation I highly recommend you check out the show notes to see more of the work that Siders is doing also thanks to Bridget and Jennifer for coming on I heard you were a bit nervous, but you guys did your class proud, and thanks for sharing your work. The interest in Man's Retreat is only going to explode in the years ahead. People will be looking for guidance on how to do it at various scales. I'm also very interested in creating awareness around this issue. The term Man's Retreat doesn't actually capture the public's imagination, but in adaptation circles, it makes sense. As I was finalizing this episode, I was having some conversations with some friends who aren't involved with climate work at all, and what came to mind when they heard the term Man's Retreat? Yes, this is what I do in my free time to make conversation. Sad, I know. These are very smart people, but obviously no exposure to the adaptation universe. One associated with a literal retreat when you go on some personal or professional retreat. Another associated with a military response to something. I thought these were very interesting answers to a subject the broader public has not been exposed to. As Sadiers and I discuss, we need to go all in on creating more awareness around the issue. Maybe the term managed retreat will be replaced by something easier to comprehend, but the concept itself needs to be introduced more. I'll be sure to come back to this topic again and again. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you or your organization is interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future sponsored episode. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy this. This is an emerging issue. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast, but also my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation ways that will inspire you and hopefully get you thinking about the subject. You can contact me at my website at americadapts.org. Okay, your donation makes a huge difference. You are providing financial support to further communicating what will be the defining issue of this and future generations, adapting to climate change. You can donate at a very simple website. The link is in my show notes. Okay, so you hear me talking about how you can support the podcast financially, but you can also support it by just getting the word out. Podcasts succeed by word of mouth. So share a recent episode on your own social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and certainly try to tweet at me if that's what you do, but it that would be fantastic. And don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is a private group. I just search for America Daps and it'll send me an email so I can approve you to join right away. It's a great chance. We have some great conversations. There's some sh- lots of links that are shared there, other podcasts that are shared there. 
I'm trying to develop a community there, and I think it's already got some amazing voices on there, so check that out. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. It is the highlight of my week, receiving these emails, people letting me know what they're doing or they have questions. I have had many phone conversations with people that have followed up with me, and it's really exposed me to this broad community that's out there. There are people that's they're interested in getting to that community and i'm at americadapts at gmail.com send me an email okay adapters keep up the great work i'll see you next time